Wan Smoke. Broken. Chapter 4. Broken. As the name suggests, Glassboro is an excellent opportunity to load up on all manner of craftsman glassware, but there is a lot more to this city than just cups and platters. Since the construction of their blast furnace and adoption of gremlin slaves and under-river iron mining, what was a town of poor potters and brickmakers has become home to the Crystal Palace and the world's greatest producer of crucible steel. For that reason, you should stock up on coal in the northern mining villages before stopping in, especially during winter. You'll turn a profit, guaranteed. And if you're planning on following the river deep southwest down to Cynic, be sure to buy as much steel as your cart can carry. That is, if you have any money left after visiting the Burroughton Brothel. From the Berg and Sons Traveler's Guide, Visiting Glassboro. I stuff my pack full with sorrows. A cotton smock, socks, and an indigo robe. Bilar's wife's journal. Crown caps crushed and made into pellets. A roll of marigold bandages, and an oil lamp fashioned from iron and resin. Unlike my last one, resistant to the mischief of wayward fay. Then I top it off with hard bread and jerky, pin the pack closed, and sling a separate satchel from my shoulder. It rattles, full of bones. Gerard will be my only companion now, though he's not much of a talker. Not like Chaka. I'm going to miss that yipping ghoulish hob. I considered taking him with me, but where I'm going, there'll be no forest full of fresh corpses for him to eat. It'll be your own adventure. I tell myself, belting the bayonet that was the hewing spearhead of Gerard's dragon lance. It's an adventure, because if it's me who makes the choice to leave, then it means I haven't been abandoned. Ashwood staff in hand, I bid the vault farewell, slide shut the door on cool shadows, smooth tunnels, stone alcoves and shelves stuffed with books and wool bedding on which Chaka snores the morning away. Outside, I say goodbye to Old Holm as well. It feels strange, a bit like casting a spell. Like I'm outside myself waiting on the spirits to come and deliver me somewhere else. But they don't. I receive no answer, not even an echo from the desolate ridge. Only the river replies, hushing me as it feeds into Black Lake, like a mother hushes her baby. To think, not long ago the murmuring deep was soothing balm to me, now it only adds to my forlorn feelings, another sorrow to carry, heavy as the rock salt that makes the lake sting. How fast things can change, I think, cutting straight south over gray hills, rocky soil, through long, dead woods, until I reach the open road along the river running for Glassboro. That's where I'm going to find a new home. A new family. Life in Village South wasn't the same by the time Canty and I returned from our expedition. A caravan of homesteaders and hob-hunters had arrived from Marigold the first day of our adventure, as did representatives from the Union Church and the Golden Anvil. Together they numbered a hundred, man, woman, and child, with prospects for becoming ten times that if Grant could find land and lodging to hold them. It was exactly the moment the constable had been waiting for. He called for a flash assembly, and by popular vote it was decided that South extend its village borders, erect a town hall, and distribute its governing powers among three sitting councillors. Grant, of course, got to keep his seat. Apparently the miners tried to nominate Maddock, but he was gone when they needed him, leagues beneath the earth seeking the power of the old king. 
That left room for Gaston's representatives to squeeze their employees into electing South's appointed overseer, cousin James Edwin Gus. But then, in a twist, the newly incorporated Marigold Mystics teamed with the Apothecary's Guild to elect Domnall the Wizard to the last councillor seat. Two against one, and Gaston was all but run out of South. Grant proposed a ban on gremlins in town, and Domnall suggested levying a tax on the church. Of course, that got expanded to include the guilds and Gaston mining as well. Both rulings passed, and Gaston's attempt to prohibit guild membership among its workers was shot down. The constable wouldn't stand for it. It's against the old king's law, he said to break contract with a man for reasons other than delinquency or lawlessness. And that was that. Boundaries were drafted, properties auctioned, and values recorded in a shiny new ledger. The village had officially become the Township of South. Things were getting better, at least for the moment. Now that the Hell Gates was closed on account of its owner's demise, Canty and I had to make supper ourselves. I was distraught at first because he was such a terrible cook, but I have to admit that it was kind of fun, too, for us to make the meal together. And with the money we saved doing it ourselves, and with the extra coin we made selling coal in town, thanks to the winter, we could afford more than ever before. Cotton clothes and softer bandages, balm made from rosemary and peppermint oils, small blessings, but when wind, sun, and linen sting like bees, soft cloth is as freeing as a set of wings. And the indigo robe, that was pure kindness, and an expense that even our new conditions couldn't afford. But when Canty saw me staring at the bolt of bright purple cloth, he struck a bargain then and there with the tailor to pay in installments. You saved us, he said when I protested. It's the least I can do. Without you, I'd be dead. But it wasn't true what he said. He lives just fine without me. Just as I feared, the Lord of Black Flame has no need of a seer to find his way. Only it wasn't the mystics who turned out to replace me. It was the spirit of the king and the eye of Amgine. It happened gradually, starting with Canty asking me to teach him how to write and read and perform the occult rituals. And in the beginning, that made me happy. To be useful in a way I couldn't be before. But as he mastered the symbols himself, could delve on his own into Bilar's tome, the legends of Gerard, and whatever other books he borrowed from Nastius, he seemed to have less and less time for me. He'd say things like, I'm sorry, I can't. Why don't you take Chaka for a walk? Or maybe tomorrow. I'll be too busy at the guild today. That was the worst of it, how often he put me off to run experiments with the alchemists. Never once did he invite me, and I knew not to ask to come along. If I did, the wizard would blame me when something inevitably went wrong. Old fool, though he and Nastius did engineer the spring pins that attach the staff and bayonet. I guess that makes them better than the sword of King Ogier. For the thousandth time, the thought comes to mind. We should have left that thing to rot with Madoc, but we were so excited, we didn't think to question the innkeep's motivations, how he traversed the miasma, or how he kept on fighting with a lance in his chest. It seems stupid now to not have noticed. He was possessed by the soul of the old king that lingers in the legend surrounding the sword. And now the soul lingers within Kanti, whispering, 
driving his obsession to study and experiment till he can at last tap the power latent in the eye of Amgine. I tried to warn Grant, but like everyone else, he was too busy to me hear me out. Besides, it's impossible the soul of the old king would be a ne'er-do-well, he'd said. I sigh, remembering, but breathing deep the cold morning air, I find my mind becomes clear again. I wish others would do the same. Sometimes people get dumb ideas in their heads, like locking up witches and fairies and hobs like they do in Marigold. So I stay off the main road, half hidden amidst fields of winter wheat and barley, but close enough to watch the flow of settlers trickling north for the new township. Fortunately, the weather is light snow and no rain most of the way. The fluffy white flakes that coat my cloak and hat provide camouflage during the day, and at night, there's always roadside stables to hide in. They're so busy that three nights in a row they don't notice me stowed away among the mules and ponies. But nothing. No roof over my head nor crowd of horses, not even crown cap pellets, can keep the cold of loneliness from creeping into my heart. Slow to sleep, slow to escape the nightmares, like my body's underwater, sinking ever deeper. Memories drowning, their lungs flooding, the river hushing her final words so I cannot remember who she was or what she said to me. When I awaken, it's the fourth day, dark and early in the morning, and wet. It seems the snow turned to rain overnight. Now it's pouring, and as I stare toward the northeastern horizon, no hint of outer city patrol lanterns, lighted windows, nor chimney smoke is traced in the pre-dawn light. I think I'll wait it out. This is far enough that no one should recognize me, though I'm not quite sure where I am exactly. Somewhere southwest of Marigold, that's for sure, since last night was the first time that the road was bereft of migrants. The same can be said for horses as well. The stable is vacant except for me. There's not even hay for a floor, just dust and dirt and a little wood rot pile propped against crumbling brick and mortar. That's all right. I don't mind being alone. It gives me the chance to change my itchy linens for balm and clean cottons and the warmth of an extra layer of robe. Rubbing in the medicine, the peppermint in it sets my skin to tingling and my stomach to rumbling at the delicious scent. But when I check my pack for breakfast, I'm out of bread and jerky. I hope they serve bacon here, wherever it is I'm at. I dig out the resin lantern and striker, light it and rediscover my surroundings. This isn't an inn at all. I'm in a small farm stable adjacent to a house I'd mistaken for a tavern under a blanket of snow. In the waxy yellow lantern light I see golden icicles dripping from the sills of broken windows insulated with bundles of rotting chaff. The same is true for the roof, and as for the chimney, it's smokeless and cold and crumbling like the walls, all of the same grey brick visible in patches where the whitewash has worn off. No chance they serve bacon, whoever lives in this cottage. But I brave the rain anyway, and knock on the door. Hello? Is anyone home? I'm a traveler on the road, and I was hoping I could find some food and shelter. I pause a moment. It's really pouring out here, so if anyone's home, I'd really appreciate it if... Go away! A girl's voice sounds muffled through the door. We're poor, can't you see? We don't have anything for you. Even if it's just a moment to get warm, it really is cold out here. I promise I'll only stay until the rain gives up, then I'll be on my way. There's another pause, then, All right, she says, hardly louder than the pattering on the brim of my hat. 
But you have to promise that you're not a Nixie or a Hobgoblin. I promise. Or a Brownie. We don't have money to feed you for your work if you is. I have no idea what that is. Is a brownie like a kobold? What's a kobold? She asks. It's a kind of house fay. That's a brownie, she says. Where are you from that you call them kobolds? South, I tell her. She asks, Cynic or Glassboro? No, the village south. It's a township northeast of Marigold. What? Is it a village to the south or a town in the north? She opens the door, a girl no older than me, her face bemused till she lays eyes on my body, bandaged, head to toe, cloaked and robed. You're a w, w witch she sputters, stumbling backwards into her house. I promise I'm not a kobold, I say, and invite myself inside. It's barren, cold, and dim within. A single hay mattress is all the furnishings, visible only because of the yellow lantern glow. No blankets on it either. They're wrapped around the girl's shivering body, ragged things like the old sheets we wore for cloaks when Canty was still the Lord of Fear. The girl's raggedy, too, as though she's not bathed in weeks, though her hair is brushed to a bright brown sheen that lights up her dirty cheeks. Thank you for letting me out of the rain. I'm soaked through. Do you think we could get a fire going so I can dry off? There's no wood, she whimpers and I aim my lantern toward the hearth. Not a single log in the pile of ashes. I'm sorry, father's always gone, so no one split the wood. Please don't turn me into a frog. I thought witches turned people into newts. After a long pause, the girl stands up and says, You're from a really weird place, aren't you? The two of us laugh at that, and the room feels just a little bit warmer. She introduces herself, extending her hand. Roslyn, she says, is it against the rules to ask you your name? I've no idea, I say, leaning my staff against the wall so I can receive her greeting. But I read in a story that you can accidentally sell your firstborn child by shaking a fairy's hand. We laugh again, and I tell her between breaths that my name is broken. Still chuckling, Roslyn has me repeat it. After the second time, she stops smiling. That's awful. Who would name their own child that? It wasn't my parents, I correct her. The name Broken was given to me by the Lord of Fear when I became his seer. I can't remember what they called me before that. The girl stares at me like she's seen a ghost. You can't remember? Too many mushrooms, I guess. The thought makes my stomach grumble, and I shiver in my wet, cold clothes. I'd really like to get a fire going. Are you sure you don't have any logs we could split? I thought I saw some outside. That's right. I forgot there used to be a pile out back in the stable. There's no way to chop it, though. Father sold the axe last time he was home. I undo the leather ties on my side satchel and draw out the dragon lance bayonet. Roslyn, probably thinking I'm about to transmogrify her into a beaver, skitters backwards till her back is flat against the far wall. It makes me smile. I can't help but feel that Canty would be proud of my show of power as I utter the incantation, invoke the spirit, Enantiodromia. And at once, the bones of giant slayer Gerard leap into assembly. Hark! I command the animated skeleton. Takest thy weapon and discoverest the woodpile. From thence thou shalt baton. Gerard, his socket staring, gives the slightest shrug. I try again. 
Go around to the stables and split some wood by wedging the spearhead and hitting it with another log. I shove the bayonet in his hands. Do you understand? The skeleton shrugs again but marches outside as ordered. Bonehead. Sometimes Gerard really kills the atmosphere. We're going to have to practice more mundane commands. An hour later and it's still pouring, but at least we've got a fire going now and Rosalind's calmed down from her scare about Gerard. We talk, and I learn that the people who live along this stretch of river, Claysville it used to be called, have become faint of heart regarding the mysterious. At first I think it's influence from Marigold's Union Church, but it turns out to be because of a curse on the soil, bogged beyond warrant of the annual floods. It hasn't been arable since Gaston found their first iron deposits beneath the river decades ago. Since then, all the local farmers had to resort to pole boating into Glassboro for work. Occasionally, someone never comes back home. Locals blame the very water spirits whom they used to worship until the fey genocide of old King Ogier more than 300 years ago, long, long before the influx of gremlin labor made the city the richest in the world. In the world? Really? I ask. She cocks her head and listens for a moment, says, You must never have seen the Crystal Palace. I think the rain stopped. I can show you if you want. That would be wonderful, I say stricken by an emotion that I'm too afraid to name, so I say hers instead. Roslyn? Yes? My heart is racing. Cold sweat soaks my newly dried bandages. Does this mean that... that we can be friends? The look she gives suggests that was the silliest thing I could have asked. Of course, she says. We're already friends. Then her nose scrunches in vexed concentration. What's wrong? Nothing, it's just... she hesitates. It's your name. I can't stand the idea of calling you broken. I mean, it's mean, isn't it? I try to smile, though I'm not sure it doesn't come out a grimace. Why do you think I'm wrapped in all these bandages? I thought it was because you're a witch. Now a true smile breaks through and giggles as well. They help soften the blow when I unravel my hand and show her the cracked, peeling, scaly skin, wet and glistening where blisters have ruptured. You see, I really am broken. We leave that topic behind with the house and move on to talk of how magic works. Rosalind's shocked with how much I don't know, like how to turn us into fishes or conjure a boat. She asks how I've been traveling, and when I tell her I walked for four days on my own from the foothills of the mountains, she nearly falls over. Apparently, she's never journeyed longer than the two hours' march from Claysville to Glassboro. That's hard to believe until I see a great glass tower rise from behind the muddy knolls, the first of many. Even through the swathes of gray, overcast clouds, the crystal palace shines white as sunlight. And where mist lingers, it's every color of the rainbow. I've never imagined anything like this. Walls of polished mirror with frames like platinum. Is that silver? I ask Ross in disbelief and she tells me it's steel. Strongest in all Sealand. Come on, I'll show you the blast furnace. We race the rest of the way, over the knolls and into the outer city. The North End, Ross calls it, where the best shops stretch on for a mile. I never knew so much wealth to reside in one place. The street alone leaves my mouth gaping. Its lime-washed bricks are laid wide enough for eight horses abreast and set smoother than should be possible on the rolling hills so close to the river. 
Then there are shops themselves. Doesn't matter what they're selling. Whether they're tailors, clothiers, cordwainers or cobblers, butchers or bakers, bookstores or potter shops, jewelers, apothecaries, taverns or slave auctions, they're all built to the same grand standard. Foundations washed smooth as porcelain, windows for walls, dome rooftops of glass and steel. And the people. This must be what they call perfume, the delicious odor on every person like rosemary, sage and lavender. It reignites my hunger, but given the luxury of the passers-by's clothes, waxen hats and leather cloaks with furs and velvet liners, food here will cost too much to afford, as will anything else anywhere near the gated Crystal Palace. Ross shows me the steel spike fence and the palace patrolmen, each armed with a death wand like South's old constable. Only theirs seem different. See those? They're the latest model wands, straight out of Cynic. They've got twisted barrels and a new mechanism. They say you can even shoot them in the rain. Oh, and there! She points toward a retinue of well-dressed men with bodyguards crossing from one glass tower into another. Those are owners and councilmen. They run the whole city. Without them, Glassboro would still be a bunch of piss-poor potters. At least that's what everybody who lives in North End says. We continue around the fence and cross into a different section. This is the residence. Ross names the towering complexes that house the middle-rich in single-room apartments. And as we walk, the district transitions. High-rises give way to quainter, more aged structures. Steel supports disappear, brick and mortar taking their places. Here, the lime wash loses it vibrant white. The bricks become chipped and uneven under our feet until there aren't even any bricks at all. And this, Ross says, is called the South End. I grit my teeth as we wade onto a muddy road pocked with refuse-laden puddles. Crumbling gray buildings and wood-rot overhangs make a cave of the narrow streets, except that I've lived in a cave before and even the rank of Black Lake never amounted to the cesspool in which these people are living. Yet, no one seems to notice. Everyone I see is either lost in toil, mending clothes, patching roofs, or hawking whatever goods have passed through their fortune. Or else they are among living dead, men sprawled and stupefied, glazed eyes staring up into the strip of visible sky. Ross watches them nervously, royals them, the ones who sleep with their eyes open. They're safe so long as they're dreaming, but stay away if you see one wake up. They'll do anything for a drop of crown. We stop in front of a decrepit brick shop, the only building on this street with an oven. Did you say crown? I ask as we walk inside. Then I'm hit with the first pleasant smell since we entered South End, the scent of warm bread and that of a lumber yard. The baker, busy with his work, calls for us to wait where we are. There is no counter, no stools or chairs, just a couple cobwebbed corners and a plank floor covered in sawdust. Yeah, Ross answers. It's called Crown Elixir. They've got a distillery in the Crystal Palace, sometimes the royals to try to climb the fence to get it. Not anymore they don't, says the South End baker, suspicion in his bushy white brows as he approaches. Haven't been any hoppers in almost a month. Wish I could say the same about robberies, he pats his hip at the side of his apron. Through a puff of flour, I can just make out the bulge of a gremlin death wand. But the price of powder's getting worse, what with the owners and their public safety proposition. 
But what do children care about that? You came for scraps, right? Well, I don't do handouts, so scram, you damned beggars. Rosalind falls to her knees, recites pleading, Please, we're hungry. Can't you spare anything at all? The baker growls, and I swing my pack around and start digging for my purse. It isn't much, just a fistful of coppers, but as soon as the pouch jangles, the baker takes notice. Paying customers, eh? Well, that makes things different. I've got a fresh loaf just out of the oven. Give me two of them coins and you girls can share while it's still warm. I count out three coppers and hold them out for him to see. I've got questions as well. What? Do I look like a tavern to you? Talk is free. He grabs two of the three coppers but then hesitates. Say, why are you all wrapped up? You ain't sick, are you? Not sick, cursed. It's something I was born with, but don't worry, it's not contagious. It ain't what? It doesn't spread to other people, I try again. This time he gets it, takes the coins from my hand and says, You sure use big words for such a little girl? I read a lot of books. It's because she's a witch, interjects Rosalind. The baker grunts, his expression hidden in the snowy curls of his beard. I guess that means I better get you your bread. Don't want to get turned into a frog. That's what I said. He fetches the loaf and breaks it in half, keeps some crumbs for himself, swallows them while Ross and I chew our dry, tasteless chunks. I heard that you can't curse someone if you break bread with them, is that true? I shrug and swallow. All I know is how to resurrect monsters. We chew for a moment. He looks to Ross, who nods her confirmation. Huh, he grunts. So you said you had questions? Only about a hundred, but we focus the discussion on the introduction of Crown into the Gaston operation. It's like the Hell Gates all over again, except that half the jobs were already taken by gremlin slaves before the elixir came. For decades, no man has mined in Glassboro, and now what used to need human hands in the glassworks and blast furnace has been taken over by the scaly paws of those furry little abominations. All that thanks to the new crown elixir, sold to the city as a way to sedate the slaves. But it did more than that. The baker complains that soon after its introduction, peddlers started hawking it in the south and west ends. And when we ask for patrolmen, the owners threaten to take our wands away. Don't know who's worse, them or the damn royals. I say, it's Dr. Edgar, and they stare at me with confused faces. To explain the story would take all day, so I tell them to forget I said anything. After, Rosalind and I make our way toward the West End where the farms and industry are located. We're not a hundred paces from the bakers, though, before we come across a man soliciting Crown. Ross pulls me around a corner and into a vacant alley, pops her head out to watch, and I take my hat off to do the same. The royal hunches before a peddler of crown, his filthy hands shaking out of cold or habit. It's hard to tell given the state of his rags. What's not been torn or stolen or sold leaves naked his arms all the way up to the shoulder, and his ankles as well, and his feet where they're not submerged in half-frozen puddles. In big puffs of white he begs the peddler, though try as he might, his deadened tongue can't form the words. So he reaches out, and likewise his trembling fingers fail to grip the street merchant's cloak. He lurches forward as the peddler slips back, crashes face first with a muddy splash, and the peddler laughs, one sharp, short breath. Then there's the familiar clicking of a death wand's hammer cocking beneath his cloak. 
Careful, sire. You could get hurt trying to buy elixir without greasing my fingers first. You know how they catch on things like triggers and throats. Please, the royal manages to moan, raising his mud-caked face, utterly shameless. The peddler shoves him onto his back with a boot to the chest. Shut it. If you show your face without my money again, I'll blow a hole in your head so big you won't be able to tell it from your old lady after a night with the gang. Please, he repeats, oblivious to the threat. Nothing. I got nothing left. Then you better move your royal ass to down to the brothel. See if your old lady don't have something for you. You can't tell me she ain't been busy. That's the last Rosalind can stand to listen. She whips her head from around the corner, presses her palms to her ears to muffle the world. I call her name, take her by the shoulders, and try shaking her. None of it works. I can't reach her. No matter what I say, she just closes evermore until she's stiff and still and cold as stone. It takes the sound of sloshing footsteps staggering toward us before she's broken from her trance. The royal is coming. Surely he's heard us. A man who might do anything if it means he'll get his crown. I put my hat back on to free a hand for my bayonet. One quick twist is all it'll take to affix it on the end of my staff. Nostius's work, a quick assembly dragon lance using the same spring lock as a gremlin death wand. But I never get a chance to draw the blade. Rosalind grabs my arm before I can and drags me out the opposite end of the alleyway. We're several streets north when we finally rest, safe in front of the gates of the Crystal Palace. Here the roads are brick again, converging in a ring around an enormous ceramic fountain in the shape of a potter's urn, gray and simple. Ross and I crash onto a bench adjacent to the fountain's basin and catch our breaths, count the passing patrolmen, listen to the current of an underground canal, like the rush of the river deep, sounding out from drains on the pavement. A place of respite. At least it seems like we'll be staying here a while. Rosalind's gone quiet again, and I've got questions about what just happened. After cleaning our shoes with water from the fountain and counting 22 patrolmen plus the four stationed as gate guards, I conclude that I have no idea what to say to Rosalind or how to broach the topic at all, and it's not for lack of trying. In fact, I think I've figured it out. The state of her home, empty but for her, combined with what the baker told us. That Royal was her father, and her mother must be the brothel worker that the peddler was talking about. But being smart doesn't help one bit when it comes to talking it out. In the end, it's Ross who breaks the silence. Broken, she starts. I reply at once. Thank you. For what? I answer with a smile so big it stings my nose and cheeks and chin. You said my name. She grins, though only for a moment. That's all? That's nothing to thank me for. Yes, it is, because it means I've got a friend in this world. My only friend now. But I interrupted you. What were you going to say? I've been wanting to ask you since we were at the house. It didn't seem right when you were just a stranger, but now, since we're friends, broken. Why did you leave Village South? Where are you planning on going now? Anywhere else because they all abandoned me, tossed me aside when I wasn't convenient, I think, yet I'm hesitant to give the thought speech. To do so would be dangerous. Careless words formed in anger or grief can easily lay a curse on the speaker, the listener, the subject, or sometimes all three. And besides that, our situations are not the same, Rosalind's and mine. 
If I tell her why, she might think of doing the same even though her parents are still alive. That's it. I know what to say. Your mother must really love you to do what she's doing. Your father, too. He's just not in his right mind. There is silence between us. I wait, praying to the spirits that I said it right. But I never. She starts, then begins again. How did you know? I say with a smile. Because I'm a witch and a seer, that's why. Ross looks at me, turns her attention from where we'd escaped. Then you know what I was going to ask you. Whether or not you should run away. Her eyes lock with mine. Why shouldn't I? Because there are people who love you, who couldn't live with you gone, I say, so happy that I finally found the right words. But they're not. They're wrong. 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 She leaps up from the bench and, still staring at me, thrusts her finger towards the South End streets. How can you say that when you saw how it is? It's just a matter of time till the elixir kills him. And my mother, too. They make them drink it when they work at the brothel so they won't ever go home anymore. It's been so long since I've even seen her face. And father, when he comes, won't even look at me. It's so cold in that house. I'm always so alone. How can you say that they care when they're both living their whole lives without me? They don't care. They don't. No, they do care. And you're not alone. I start and reach out to touch her hand. Rosalind recoils, her big brown eyes erupting into tears as she bolts to the west and disappears behind a bunch of pedestrians rounding the fountain. I don't chase after her. I don't know what I'd say if I did, nor do any of the busy passers-by spare the least bit attention. Not when Ross bursts between them, nor as I sit here in front of the basin with my head in my hands crying, because now I'm alone too. Just like in South, they won't even look at us. We're unwanted, shunned, hated, cursed. No, don't give up. There's got to be something you can do. Like what, I think. But the answer won't come. Not without the vision of a cap of crown. I dig a pellet out of my pack and suck on it till it's spongy and wet and my mouth goes numb as I watch the clouds, one long gray expanse with the sun peeking out. The old tyrant has just begun his descent. I pose to him my question, and he offers nothing in return, just glares menacingly at my crime of being in the world. Why is he always so mean? I ask aloud and retrieve Gerard's skull out from my side satchel. The bone feels brittle in my bandaged hands, thin as bonds of blood for the cursed and hard as the stone hearts of frightened men. What do you think, bonehead? Gerard answers. Meanness to you is light and life to others. Likewise, your precious darkness does threaten to consume those born under the sun and not the moon. And have you not found power in constraining the darkness? Why then should you complain when light shines its constraints upon you? I don't have time for philosophizing, Gerard. I just need to know what I should do to make things better. Return to Village South. That takes me aback. I squint at the skull to check if it's been damaged. Really? You're telling me that I should give up? I thought you were supposed to be a hero. And what's with the straight answer? A ghost is supposed to speak in riddles. The truth always lies within a pit of squalor. Difficult to find and harder to swallow. There we go. See, you can do it if you try, you old bag of bones. Now tell me what I need to do. Gerard goes quiet, but I try to be patient. Thinking up riddles on the spot must be tough. So I wait and wait, and after a while he responds, 
Rescue your friend who has become lost in darkness. Together confront the spirit hungry for power who has sacrificed thousands to meet his narrow ends. Rescue Ross from Dr. Edgar, got it. I stuff the skull back into its satchel, leap off the bench, wince westward, and see that time got melted. The sun has dropped a few hours in the sky, the cost of meditating with crown. Looking around, I doubt I'll be able to find where Rosalind went. But if I start at the end, my goal lies right ahead of me. I'm dead certain that on the other side of this fountain, the doctor is hiding inside the Crystal Palace. All I have to do is tell the owners about him, about all the trouble he caused in Village South. Then he'll be run out of town like when Grant found out about him, and that will be that. No more Crown Elixir. Ross's parents will get clean, and then finally the three of them will go back to being a family happily ever after. With my plan set, I head straight to the gate and its four armed guardsmen. They're watching me, it seems, have been since I consulted Gerard, given the way they whisper, chuckling back and forth. Before I'm anywhere near the gate itself, they send the youngest forward to greet me. He can't be older than Grant, a new man, tall and skinny as a girl, with dark hair and dark eyes and a beard lighter than peach fuzz. Propping his death wand on his shoulder, he frowns and starts off. All right, listen here, crazy lady. You must be new in the city, because we ain't never seen you before. On account of that, upon seeing you coming, we figure you don't know what's what around here yet. And so I'm telling you this because we don't want any trouble. That is, your kind aren't allowed in, near, or approximate to the Crystal Palace. That includes the fence, so stay clear of that too. Them's the rules. Owners and officials only. I ignore his crazy comment and tell him, that's what I have a complaint about. One of your officials is doing really bad things. The men by at the gate burst into guffaws. Didn't you hear what I said? The young man asks. His cheeks redden. You can't come in here. Now why don't you get back where you come from, huh? It'd sure make my life easier. Why don't you bring somebody out for me to talk to? I've got information that can help with the Crown Elixir and the Royals. It's all Dr. Edgar's fault. He... Out of the corner of my eye, I see a flicker of silver reflecting sunlight. Then there's a clicking sound and thunder from the gate as one of the senior guards lets off a warning shot. A brick explodes only inches from my feet. He said, scram, girly, the older guard bellows, ramming powder and wadding and ball down his wand. His two fellows aim their weapons at me as well, and even the young one unshoulders his, though he keeps it pointed at the ground as he says, Go on now, get, before they use you for target practice. They must already know, I realize. It'll be no good appealing to the authorities. Nothing like in South, where it was so easy to take for granted Grant's loyalty to the old king's laws. I step back from the mercenaries pretending to be lawmen, and they lower their guard, laugh and watch me retreat down a South End alley. I'm safe, I think, as if by putting them out of sight and thus out of mind means that the worst of it lies behind me. But it's not until I reach a vacant, muddy street that the encounter becomes really real to me. Here, alone, surrounded by shadowy doorways and windows, by rotten roofs, exposed wattle and crumbly walls, inundated in the odor of old blood, wand powder and stagnant puddles, do I feel the full effects of a fear worse than with Bilar's monster? 
I'm soaked to the bone in sweat, so cold that my nerves go to shivering while my skin salt burns and my heart flutters timorous like moths in my stomach. I think I'm going to be sick, but all that comes up are questions, feelings of helplessness. Why are you so unwanted, so useless? Can't you even help your only friend? I can, I cry to myself in the alley. It just wasn't fair. One eleven-year-old me against four grown-up men all in on the crime and armed with death wands. They're the ones who should feel ashamed, the bunch of dastards. Well, if they're allowed to be sneaky, then so am I, I think. And my guilt subsides, as does my fear as I plan my payback. I'll take them out one dealer at a time, like the rebels did against Ogier's men. They'll never see me coming. At once, my first mark comes to mind. He should be fewer than a hundred paces ahead of me, standing on a street corner that reeks of refuse, bread, and sawdust. The peddler who's been selling elixir to Ross's father. Last I saw him, he didn't look half as tough as the senior guards. One thrust from Gerard is all it should take, so I draw out the hewing blade and assemble the dragon lance, ready myself mentally to hearken Anantiodromia. You won't catch me off guard this time. I repeat the mantra quicker and quicker in my head the closer I get, the faster my heart races to scene of the altercation between Ross's father and that no-good crown peddler. Just a bit closer. I've nearly arrived. Gotcha. But no one's here. It's just an abandoned intersection of crooked alleyways. Of course he's gone. It seems obvious to me now that he wouldn't be working the same corner all day. I let my haste get the better of me. It was a stupid mistake. At least there isn't anyone around to see, I think, until a splash from behind tells me otherwise. Damn, Missy. Something did a number on you. Was it a fire or something? I got something for that, you know, to help with the pain. I spin around to see the source of the low, almost preternaturally deep voice. He's a huge man, hard and broad-featured, bald as an egg, and wearing the same plain wool and muddy boots as the previous peddler. From under the folds of his cloak, he shows me a vial, thick and long as his sausage-link fingers, and full to the stopper with a dim, amber fluid. First one's free, missy, and you look like you could really down one, what with all those burns and all. I take a deep breath to clear my insight, make space for the spirit to flow through the opening. But I'm afraid. And that anxiety fills the gap with all forms of horrors. My hands start shaking. So I squeeze the shaft, hoping the stranger doesn't notice and bring the blade to his chest. You work for Dr. Edgar, right? I ask. None of this is going as planned. I want you to give him a message. Tell him it's from an old friend from the village and that he better do like he did in Cynic and South or else he might go permanently out of business. I'll be damned, the man says. Is that a real sword? I ain't seen one of them things in ages. He lumbers forward, and I pull the point back, scared to actually impale him. It's what he was counting on. Now he's seen through my bluff. This is a dangerous neighborhood to be carrying a weapon. Might give people the wrong idea. Why don't you give that to me, Missy, before you get hurt? You're the one who's going to get hurt, I shout to convince myself that this peddler is nothing compared to the monsters of my imagination. But somehow this is different than ghosts and hobs. I wasn't alone then, and it was always Canty or Grant or Gerard or Nastius to deliver the killing blow, and never before were they human. Even with Maddock, I could see the other soul inhabiting his living corpse flesh, like a child's hand puppet. 
But this is a human being, just like me or Ross, only bigger, stronger, and a thousand times more ruthless. The dealer's facade transmogrifies from amused to terrifying. I tried being nice, he utters, and grabs the shaft faster than I can draw it back. Was even going to let you walk away. You can't say I didn't try. Then, in a voice like the growling of an ogre. But now, I'm only going to say this once. Hand over the sword and everything else you got. Then you're coming with me down to auction. Next thing I know, there's a barrel inches from my face, shorter and wider than I've ever seen with a rough-cut muzzle and packed with wadding. No click, though. He's had the hammer cocked the entire time. Or, he continues, you're going to need more than them bandages to put your head back on after I paint the wall with it. I gasp on reflex, and the stench of wand powder floods my nostrils, freezes me like a decrepit statue, feeble, weak, unable to keep my grip on the lance. The peddler pries it from my hands and starts admiring the workmanship, looking at it up close and asking if it's gremlin steel or made of silver. Mithril, I whisper, and he scratches his temple with the end of his sawed-off wand, is about to ask what even that is when a clicking sounds from beside us. The rest happens faster than I can whirl around to see the old hoary baker blast a hole in the peddler's chest. By then, I'm turned away. But I hear the chain reaction as the dealer jerks the trigger on his own broad-barreled wand. The explosion leaves my ears ringing. I can't make out what the baker says, so I don't understand why he's searching the body, pocketing vials of crown, reloading the peddler's weapon, and... I avert my eyes and cover my ears while the baker shoots the dealer again dead center in the chest. Then he drops the sawed off, picks up my lance, and rushes me inside and around the back of his bakery. We clean up at a trough made for farm animals, though the water looks clean, at least until he wrings out the washcloth used to sop the blood spatter from his face, beard, and apron. Only the stains won't leave the apron or cloth. He growls dumps the trough onto the ground once we're done, then we're inside again, tossing evidence into his oven. Not until it's all stuffed inside and the hatch pinned closed does he bother to explain himself. But first he complains, Your little lark cost me quite a lot, girly. Didn't I tell you the price of powder's going up? And now I'm going to have to buy a new apron. That's at least ten loaves of bread. I listen, detach the bayonet from my staff and slip it back into its sheath, Look up at the old man and ask, glad to distract myself from what just happened. Ten? Can't you sell that many in a morning? That's not the point, he exclaims, though he's careful not to raise his voice. It's the principle of the thing. Getting other people involved, putting them in danger, and costing them money. What did you think you were doing? I guess there's no escaping it. Teary-eyed, yet trying my hardest not to cry, I tell him about Rosalind and the situation her parents are in that she said she wants to run away and how I thought if I could do something to change things that maybe she would stay, that maybe she could still have a happy family. The baker listens to my whole story without interruption save for the occasional grunt or sigh. Only after I'm done does he let out a big one, a long-drawn inhale and exhale, then he replies, all this for a runaway? You sure are lucky it was easy to cover up? There's a table in the back near the oven with stools and sacks of flour under it. He fetches a seat for himself and some bread for us to share. Why do you care so much anyway? You're from out of the city, ain't you? 
What's a borough brat worth to you? She's my friend. Acquaintance, the baker corrects me. Ain't nobody in Glassboro got any friends. I ignore his comment. It reminds me too much of Domnall, and respond, She doesn't know what she's giving up. And you think you know? That really heats me up. I feel it on my skin, the blood welling under already soaked bandages. Yes, I do. My parents are dead. Been gone a long time. You and a hundred other children, yet seems to me you all get by just fine. Hell, I bet it wasn't your mother who taught you to be a witch. Who was it? I taught myself. I want to throw in his face and it'd be true, but instead I say, Conti, the Lord of Fear helped me. He got me the books. The baker takes a bite of bread, grins, I think, from behind his curly beard. You see? He pauses to swallow. You found new people and you moved on. And you should keep moving on before the owners catch up with you. Let the girl run and find her own people, and you can go read more books with this Lord of Fear character. My eyes drop to the floor, the flour and sawdust. He doesn't need me anymore. He's got new friends now, so even if I went back... Wait! Went back! You mean... The old man can't finish for bursting into laughter. Again, I feel the anger in my blood. What's so funny about that? You're the same as that Roslyn girl, that's what. You ran away from home, and now that she's going, you feel bad about doing so yourself. And a man dead over it, dead over the whims of children. Ain't this a crazy world? I hate this old baker. He's worse than the wizard. The way what he's saying makes me feel inside, like I've been dumb and craven instead of clever and brave. He's tipped it upside down, and now I'm crying. And I'm sure he's about to laugh at that too. But he doesn't. Instead, he grabs the brim of my hat so that I look him in the face and says, Painful, ain't it, looking at yourself? That's why mirrors are so damn expensive, because if the South Enders had them, we'd all be royal corpses floating down the canals. Just look at my ugly mug and my filthy house. Not much to be proud of. Expect maybe for blasting that fellow, but I shouldn't say that too loud. Anyhow, am I making any sense? I don't understand half of what he said, but it's comforting somehow, and I find myself compelled to take it as true as a vision from a mushroom. What was it that Gerard told me to do? Rescue your friend who has become lost in darkness. Together, confront the spirit hungry for power and influence who has sacrificed thousands to meet his narrow ends. It seems so obvious now. How could I have made myself into such a fool? I have to go back. The baker scratches his beard. Or keep moving. It's up to you. I think them through the following questions. What will happen to Ross? And what about the royals? And the doctor? Then, as if in answer, what will happen to Canty? What will happen to you? The image of a death-wand muzzle flashes before my mind. How many times before one of them goes off while I'm staring down the charge? I've been luckier than most. I fetch my coin purse from my pack and turn back to the old man, dump the bag into my hands. I need four days' worth of that flat, hard bread. Whatever's left, give to Rosalind if you see her, and give her this message that one day I'll come back to save her family and to turn Dr. Edgar into a toad. <laughs>